Joey Hocutt. If you don't know who I am, um, glad y'all are here. I'm going to read our scripture this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. This is the New American Standard Version, in case you're reading from another one. Here it goes. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts that are ready to hear and receive your word. Lord, may we see here the great mystery that has now been revealed in the gospel. And in seeing it, may our hearts be renewed with wonder, with joy, and with fresh faith in the Lord Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen. Do you like a good mystery? Do you enjoy a good detective story? A story with the slow buildup of clues, with theories bouncing around your head until the big final reveal. No matter how much you enjoy a good mystery, I know someone who enjoys a good mystery more. I know someone who enjoys a detective thriller more than you do. Reader, I married her. <laughs> uh, my wife, Lynn, enjoys a good mystery more than anyone else I know. And if you come to our house, when you come to our house, because you're all going to do the membership course at some point and, and renew, right? When you come through our house, we've got, I think, about 20 coming today after our class. Uh, when you come, you will see a whole staircase wall that is dedicated to mysteries. It begins with Nancy Drew, vintage copies, of course. Trixie Belden's there as well. Goes through Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, Agatha Christie, with titles like A Death in the Dales, The Murder of a Quack, and one of my personal favorite titles, Dying in the Wool. That's, that's a good murder mystery, Dying in the Wool. I, I didn't know this before marrying Lynn, but apparently... There is an entire mystery genre called cozy English murder mysteries. Do you know that? Cozy English. Uh, it's all the thrills of a murder mystery with all the quaint trappings of English village life. I mean, that's, that's actually a pretty brilliant marriage, isn't it? That's a winning combination. Uh, if you are uninitiated to such stories, let me give you a little tip. It's never the person you most expect. 
because that's too obvious. It's also never the person you least expect because that would also make it too obvious to the reader. The murderer, therefore, is someone that you medium expect, which somehow very often turns out to be the vicar, right? The minister did it in the end. Shocking, I know. It's a small complaint that I have, but in modern mysteries, I find it more shocking when the minister actually turns out to be a decent guy, someone who sincerely wants to help people and bring Christ healing into broken situations. There's been a murder. <laughs> but regardless of that complaint, we still love mysteries in our house. And it would seem that there is a natural appetite in the human heart for mysteries, for mysteries and their revealing. We deeply enjoy seeing a Sherlock Holmes or a Mrs. Marple or a Hercule Poirot put all the pieces together, don't we? We enjoy it. But why? You ever ask yourself why? Why is that? Is it just the thrill of the gradual reveal of seeing a mystery solved, of putting pieces together? Or is there something even deeper going on? Are we designed by God to enjoy the mysterious? You ever thought about it? Are we made to search for meaning? Has God intentionally created us with a hunger and a love for mysteries? If so, were we made to hunger for a particular mystery? A mystery that all other mysteries were merely inferior copies. A human attempt to scratch a God-given itch. The Bible describes the good news about Jesus as a mystery. A mystery that God authored in the beginning and he is now revealing to the world and he's revealing it to us. In our passage today in 1 Peter, Peter says that God began revealing a mystery long ago to the prophets. God revealed it to them, but it wasn't his intention for them to solve it. He didn't intend the prophets to figure it all out, like detectives in a murder mystery TV show. Why? Because God wasn't interested in authoring a one-off procedural drama where all the mystery gets wrapped up by the end of each episode. Do you watch TV shows like that? I personally don't. All those things that are tied up in 50 minutes, it's not my thing. CBS, it's not my thing. And it's, it's not God's thing either. Uh, that's not God's plan for his drama. God's plan is much more like a multi-season story arc with the gradual revealing of one grand, multifaceted mystery. Characters come and go. They play their parts. They gather a few clues together. But the mystery goes on and grows from season to season until the final finale's big reveal. That's what we see here in 1 Peter. That's more satisfying as well, isn't it? That's more satisfying storytelling 
and it's more like the mystery Peter describes here. Look again with me at verses 10 and 11. Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The first thing I want you to see here is the prophet's problem. The prophet's problem. The prophets have a problem. Like spiritual detectives, like ancient virgins of Sherlock Holmes, the prophets were searching intently. They, with the greatest of care, they were making inquiries. Verse 10, they were trying to solve the mystery based on the clues. They were trying to put all the pieces together. What pieces, you ask? Verse 11 gives us some examples. They're trying to reconcile seemingly conflicting bits of information. Clues about who the Messiah would be and how he would save us. The prophets were getting conflicting clues. And they were asking questions like, how can the Messiah be the universal king and yet be the one that the world rejects? How are those two things true? How can his reign be endless and yet he dies in the place of the people? How can that be true? How can he heal the broken bits of the world and yet himself be broken beyond all recognition? The prophets had clues, but very often those clues led them to even more questions than they had answers. They had the pieces, but they didn't see how they all fit together. Part of the prophet's problem was due to the prophet's perspective. The prophet's perspective. Let's take this as an example. Think of Isaiah, the prophet. As a prophet, how does Isaiah gather his clues? It's not like Sherlock Holmes, not like he would, by leaning on his own cleverness to decipher things, gather clues. Uh, the prophets are not piercing the mysteries of God through their superior cleverness. Instead, God is piercing them, their hearts, with the direct inspiration of his Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom Peter here calls the Spirit of Christ, gives prophets like Isaiah glimpses of what's coming. The prophet is given by the Spirit clues. And then, like a detective, Isaiah tries to put all the pieces together, all the clues together, not fully seeing how they fit. Isaiah knows that the Messiah will be called the mighty God. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. But Isaiah also knows that this mighty God will be a child born to us. A son will be given to us. Isaiah knows that this one will be God's king reigning forever. But he also knows that this Messiah will die as a sacrifice for sin. Part of Isaiah's problem is his perspective. Here's a way to visualize that problem. If you've been around ABC for a little while, I've given you this illustration before. We can visualize the prophet's problem like a person approaching a mountain range. Remember this? A person approaching a mountain range. Picture a mountain range in your mind. 
You've got the foothills at the beginning and then taller mountains behind that and then even taller peaks, the biggest peaks behind those. Have you ever had this experience? As you approach a mountain range, you can stand at one point where all these peaks begin to blend together. They appear like one mountain even though there are valleys in between them that you cannot see. This is the problem of the prophet's perspective. Isaiah sees all the truths about the Messiah, but they merge together into a single point, into a single peak, not seeing that there are valleys of time in between those peaks. There's distance there. Not seeing that there would be a first coming of Christ to deal with sin, and then a second coming of Christ later to renew the world. And so, Peter says, the prophets, they're trying to figure it all out. The prophets are trying to put together God's mystery. And try as they might, they never manage to put all the pieces together. Why? Because the mystery of the gospel isn't a one-episode procedural drama. It's a multi-season story arc. And like a good scriptwriter, God delights to fulfill his word in a surprising way. He delights to reveal his mystery in a way that the audience did not see coming. No one saw it coming. At the time, no one could know, no one saw, none of the prophets figured out exactly how the Messiah would come, what he would be, what he would do. But looking back, now that we have seasons 1 through 10, the Old Testament, looking back, we say, oh, of course, that's what he meant the whole time. The clues were all there. How brilliant. All the foreshadowing in the previous seasons, it's all there. What a brilliant author to this story. The contradictory things the prophets foretold now all make sense. We understand them. We can see now, even though they couldn't see it, how all these things come together. The prophets couldn't solve the mystery themselves, but they did come to this conclusion. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. If the Old Testament prophets had a big reveal moment at the end of their early season run, at the end of their detective work, here's the big reveal. It was revealed to them that their real work was actually Serving you. You. Their real life's work was serving a future generation. A future generation they would not live to see. Their work was for us. It was revealed. For our encouragement. That's why they wrote. They didn't just speak the words of God to their contemporary. They wrote it down. Why? For us. They are serving us. It's for our faith. They didn't just speak the mysteries of God. They wrote them down for us. For us today. This is the second thing I want you to see. We've seen the prophet's problem. Now we want to see the prophet's answer. 
Here's the answer they got. Verse 12, it was revealed to them they weren't serving themselves, but you, a future generation. That was that you are who they were really serving. The prophets knew that they wrote to serve you. They faithfully gave us the pieces of the gospel revealed to them. Even when it didn't make sense, these things seem contradictory, but we're going we're gonna to give you all that God said anyway. Even when it didn't make sense, even when they couldn't figure it out, they gave it to us. How, they didn't know how God could possibly fit all these contradictory pieces together. But nevertheless, here it is. Peter says, in doing this, the prophets were in good company. Not understanding these things. Not understanding how all the pieces went together. The prophets were in good company. Whose company? You see that at the end of verse 12? Even the angels didn't get it. The angels didn't see how all the pieces fit together. These are things into which angels long to look. Angels who are ancient beings, far more clever than any human Sherlock Holmes. These angelic beings were themselves trying to put the pieces together of what God was doing. Let me pause here and just state a rather obvious application. If the gospel is a thing of wonder to angels, it should be a thing of wonder for you as well, right? If angels can't plumb the depths of God's mysterious salvation plan from the perspective of heaven, you never will on earth, right? A lifetime of reflecting on the gospel will still find new wonders to behold and new treasures to have your heart fall in love with again and again and again. That's why we never outgrow our need for the gospel. And that's why we'll never need more than the gospel. The gospel is the fountain we go to again and again and again and drink from. It is great. It is glorious. It is profound. Anytime your sleepy heart wants to yawn at the good news about Jesus, just remind yourself, these are things into which angels long to look. The gospel is a revealed mystery, one that requires a response from us. That's the third thing I want you to see. There's the prophet's problem, verses 10 and 11. There's the prophet's answer, verse 12. Now I want you to see our response, beginning in verse 13. Here's our response, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not often that a drama's unfolding mystery requires a response from us. But this one does. The best mystery authors, the best script writers out there probably aim to produce a response in their audience. It might just be shock. It might be awe at the big reveal. The response God wants from us, however, goes far deeper than that. His mystery story is meant to impact the whole of our lives. Our minds, what we do with our bodies, our hope, our behavior, our character, it's all meant to be reshaped 
and transformed as we respond to this mystery of the gospel. Here's what that looks like. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Anyone here still read King James 1611 English? Very Shakespearean. It says, gird up the loin of your minds for action. Right? Our minds are to be alert. The gospel reveals to us a world of meaning and purpose that is all around us, all the time. We are not the accidental collision of atoms. We're not the result of that. We are more like characters in a story. Characters which Jesus has spoken into existence. We are engaged in a spiritual struggle. We're engaged in spiritual warfare with real and eternal consequences. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be alert. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Our bodies and desires, we are to keep under control. Keep sober. We are not to live as those who indulge their every desire and let their appetites rule their lives. Let our appetites control us. Why? Because the gospel says we are much, much more than our desires. You are much more than your desires. In opposition to what the world often says, the gospel warns us that many of our desires will be wrong. Just wrong. Many of our desires will be self-destructive. Therefore, be sober. Don't be intoxicated. Be self-controlled. Be controlled by a superior desire to know and enjoy the one who made you for himself. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's mystery story impacts our minds, our bodies, and also our deepest hopes. Hope is, by nature, future-looking, isn't it? We don't hope for what we already have. Don't have to do that. We hope for what is yet to come. And hope can be easily misplaced. Many people around us have their hope fixed upon the pleasure of their next vacation. That's where my hope is. On the rest that they'll have when retirement comes. Or on the prestige that will come with that next big promotion at work. But the gospel comes to us overturning all of our lesser hopes and replacing them with something much richer and deeper. Replacing them with this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us a hope worth having. Finally, a hope worth having, a hope that sees us through the trials of life. While everyone else is freaking out around us, we have a hope as believers that cannot, that will not disappoint. Because if you put too much hope in your next vacation, you're sure to be disappointed, right? It wasn't as fun or relaxing as you thought, and it was over far too quickly. Those retirement years aren't as sweet as you thought they would be now that you have that chronic back pain. 
that promotion doesn't feel worth it at work when it comes with all those extra responsibilities. Those things are too small to put your hope in. But there is a hope, church, that will not disappoint, that will outlive all your wildest expectations. It's this. Fix your hope completely upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Here's another part of our response. Here's another aspect of our lives impacted by the gospel story. God reveals a mystery to us that impacts us. Verse 13, it impacts our minds, our bodies, our hopes, but also, verse 14, it impacts our behavior. Our behaviors begin to change. There was a time for each of us when our behaviors were shaped by ignorance. We just didn't know. We were ignorant. We thought we knew what life was about and how to live it. As children growing up, we thought we knew what things were about, but we were wrong. Our desires were wrong. We were ignorant because we ignored the gospel. The only mystery great enough to transform our hearts, we ignored. It's like God offered us a well-written, mystery-revealing, life-changing story, but we preferred to stick with our trashy romance novels instead. We preferred to stick with things that would not satisfy. In our ignorance, we ignored the real true treasure that was offered us. But, Christian, you are ignorant no longer. In the gospel, God has intervened into your mess. He has turned on the light. He has taken the trashy romance novel out of your hand, and he has given you a story better than the Lord of the Rings. There it is. A story about the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's given it to you. A mystery now revealed about how death really was undone and defeated. About how your soul was purchased for God. You are not your own. It's a mystery that we participate in. A mystery that recognizes And requires a response. There must be a response from us. And here is a good summary statement of what that response should look like. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the intended impact of God's mystery story. That our character might begin to be reshaped to reflect God's character. We are to be holy because he is holy. This is our proper response to this mystery that's been revealed Now, you might ask, and you should ask, well, that's good, but what does it mean to be holy? What does that mean? 
What does it mean to be holy? Let me give you the most helpful definition of holiness that I have ever read. It's a definition that makes holiness something high, but also something that I can grasp mentally. Here's the most helpful quote I've ever read on God's holiness. It comes from Thomas Watson, old Puritan back in the uh, 1600s. Thomas Watson said, God's holiness consists of this. His perfect love for righteousness and his perfect hatred for evil. God's holiness consists of his perfect love for righteousness and his perfect hatred, abhorrence of evil. That's a simple definition, but it's one that puts real flesh on what it means to be holy. What it means to be holy like God is holy. To be holy like God is holy involves me loving what God loves like God loves it. And hating what God hates like God hates it. In other words, we will be holy like God is holy when we share the same heart as God. When my affections reflect his affections. When my heart mirrors his heart. When I love purity like God loves it. When I hate pride like God hates it, my heart is reflecting God's heart. When I love showing mercy like God loves showing mercy. When I hate self-destructive desires like God hates them, my character is beginning to reflect God's character. Therefore, to grow in practical holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness, is to have my heart increasingly reflect God's heart. To have my affections increasingly shaped by God's affections. When that happens, my reactions in the world will increasingly reflect the way Jesus would react. Why? Because my heart is being reshaped to be like his heart. My old knee-jerk reactions start being replaced by new responses as the gospel reshapes my heart. Like we read in Romans, when someone offends, I don't take my own revenge. Why? Because my heart has been reshaped by a God I offended who did not take his own revenge on me, but freely gave his son in my place. Our hearts begin to be reshaped by God's heart, which is our hearts being reshaped by the gospel. And slowly, bit by bit, our characters begin to change. Good authors who write good stories, they know this. They, they see this in terms of character development. At the beginning of the story, they give you some hopeless character like Ebenezer Scrooge. There he is. Dickens takes him and says, Here, here's this covetous old sinner. But then he takes Ebenezer Scrooge and he sets him off on a journey. A journey in which his old knee-jerk reactions begin to change as his character is reshaped by the story of what happens to him. Scrooge has a surprising encounter with the true meaning of Christmas. And that changes his heart, changes his life. And guess what? The same thing can happen to you. 
the exact same thing can happen to you. It won't come from a message proclaimed by three spirits, three visiting spirits, but it will come through a message preached and applied by the visitation of God's Holy Spirit in your life. You can have a surprising encounter with the mystery story that God is telling. And it can change you. It can change your character. It can change what kind of character you are in this story. Because this gospel has the power to change you from the inside, to change your heart, to make you holy like God is holy, to make you love what he loves and hate what he hates. There's one more important thing I want you to see here, especially if you're here today just exploring what it would mean for you to become a Christian. If that's you, there's something that you need to see. If you haven't seen this before, you can be easily confused here by Peter's call to holiness. Peter's call to holiness isn't this. It is not be like God so that God will accept you. That's not what Peter's saying. That's the path of every other religion in the world. Keep these rules, do these things, and you will have God's approval. That's a transactional religion. I do this for God, God does this for me. And it is really our default way of thinking about religion, about God. I obey, and in return, I am accepted. While that's the default way that most religious people in the world today think, it is not the gospel. You need to see that. It is not the gospel. Peter doesn't say, be like God so that God will accept you. Instead, he says, God has called you. God has accepted you through Jesus. Therefore, be holy like God is holy. You've got to get the order of things right. You've got to get the horse before the cart. If your response is, I'm going to clean myself up so that I can be holy, be right with God, then you have missed how the gospel makes you holy. Now, Peter says, you've been made right by God. The gospel has, believing the gospel, God has made you right. He's made you holy by uniting you to Christ through faith. Now, go and live like it, Peter says. Go and live like it's true. You have been declared holy, now go and live lives of holiness in the joyful overflow of what God has done. This is your first response, embracing Jesus by faith. This is your proper response. This is a response that God is calling for first and foremost. You won't get holiness unless you first get Jesus. If you're here today, not yet a Christian, you need to hear that. You need to know that. If you are a Christian already here today, you need to be reminded of that. Why? Because like a great mystery novel, we can put it down and after a while forget how it ends. We can forget all about the twist. What was it? You can start living like It's your performance, not Christ, that saves you. Your heart can forget the great mystery. And so you need to be reminded 
often about where true righteousness comes from. I need to be reminded often that my righteousness is not what I do, but is Christ, his perfect performance for me. Your heart needs to be called again and again and again to believe, to believe the gospel. Wherever you are today in your spiritual journey, the call is the same. The response God is calling for is the exact same. Whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time, the proper response is always to believe, to embrace Jesus by faith, to believe in the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. Believe this good news of salvation, foretold by the prophets, preached to you now. Believe in the greatest mystery story ever told, a story that impacts our real lives, a story that changes our character. These are things into which angels long to look, and we need to go back to them as a community continually, again and again. This is the mystery story that we are meant to feast upon all of our days. Let's pray together. Father, as our eyes are opened to see the great mystery of Christ, his coming, his dying, his resurrection, all of this for us, all of this standing in our place, purchasing forgiveness for us as we behold the great and wonderful mystery the prophets tried to put together, but now we look back on and say, of course, it is all gloriously true. May every heart here be a believing heart. May we all embrace Christ by faith this morning, whether for the first time or for the 10,000th time. May our hearts say yes to Jesus. We must have him. And in embracing him, the one who makes us holy, may we go out from this place living lives that have been changed, having our character reflect increasingly your character. Lord, make us holy as you are holy. May we live like who you have made us to be. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.